It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down. But no more of this blubbering now. We are going a whaling, and there is plenty of that yet to come. Let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of a place this spouter may be. Chapter 3, The Spouter Inn. Hi, uh, welcome to our Moby Dick podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Or possibly it's going to be called something else. Sorry. That, that, that one is probably the best, I'll be honest. Yeah, uh, I don't have any other better ideas, so that might be what we go with. Um... I'm, uh, I'm Tilly. I'm Ben. And, uh, we are here to take you through Moby Dick, um, chapter by chapter. So last week we read chapters one and two, and, uh, that took us through Ishmael wandering around and finding an inn to stay in. And now we're about to take you through chapter three, where he goes in and finds a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Also, Tilly, how could you forget the extracts and the etymology and the, uh... No, I think that was all. But we also did those. Yes, that's true. We also did the front matter. Um, go listen to that episode if you are curious about all this. <laughs> <sighs> um, so, in chapter three... Um, Ishmael enters the inn he's found, the Spouter Inn, and he describes the decor, uh, which, um, he immediately notices this large, dark painting in the entryway, um, which he finds really confusing. Uh, what he says is, it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of the neighbors that you could anyway arrive at an understanding of its purpose. So... He uh, decides to talk about that purpose for a while. Um, I, I just want to jump in because he very specifically says that uh, to figure it out, he um, apparently uh, like talked to the people around in the bar since he said, you know, um, visits to careful inquiry of the neighbors. So he wanders in on this freezing night and there's a big painting on the wall that's just completely indistinct. And his first thing he does before he talks about ordering a drink or finding a place to sleep is go bother people to figure out what the painting is of and decides it's a whale. Yeah, um, I he he also writes this whole section in the second person. Um, I mean, as you could tell from that quote that I said, anyway, you could arrive at an understanding. Um and it gives you the very impression that he's like, oh yeah, this is just what anyone would do. When you see a painting that seems to be entirely, like, black, your number one reaction would be to, like, puzzle over it. Not just that, but, like, he he describes the elements of the painting, and I'm going to be honest, I am impressed that he got this is whaling from it, except from the fact that there's a bunch of, wh- this is a whaler's inn, there's a bunch of sort of whaling accoutrements around, accoutrement, yeah, um, but 
he's really stretching when he says that it's definitely, it has to be a whale. And that, that really says a lot about Ishmael's state of mind, I think. Yeah, he, uh... He, he, he offers a number of possible interpretations. It's the Black Sea in a midnight gale. It's the unnatural combat of the four primal elements. It's a blasted heath. It's a hyperborean winter scene. It's the breaking up of the ice-bound stream of time. Uh, so you have to just imagine him um, gazing at it with all those ideas, like, kind of coming through his head. Um, and then, uh, of course, he finally concludes that the big, like object in the center of the painting which is sort of the main mystery of it if that's a whale then that sort of explains the rest of it and this bit over here has to be a ship um and everything else is you know the darkness and the water of a hurricane yeah and i i really do think it's he describes it as uh, partly based upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom i conversed upon the subject and it's do you mean the other people at the bar, Ishmael? Like, I, I did feel you... like he might... Hmm? He might be give it, trying to give the impression that he's, like, that he became a regular here at some point and, like, spent a lot of time staring at this picture and asking people. That's entirely um, possible, but when he says many aged persons, he makes it sound like he's going around to, like, the... the elders of the community and like you know professors of the university and asking them to account for this very indistinct large and probably quite dirty painting at a small whaling inn yes uh so so that's the entryway there's also on the other side of the entryway a bunch of weapons set on the wall um some of which are uh like pacific islander weapons and some of which are like harpoons, like a New England whaler would use. Um, and then he goes into the bar and the... It goes into the main room of the inn. And the bar itself, like, is shaped like a whale's open mouth and has a whale's jaw framing it. Um, so that the bartender, Jonah, looks like he's standing in a whale's mouth. Um... Well, he's and... called Jonah. Ishmael does not find out the guy's name, I think I want to point out. But because he resembles the biblical figure of Jonah in that he's inside a whale, uh, Ishmael just only refers to him as Jonah. Yeah, I got the impression that was maybe, like, a nickname he has. But I, but it... I think the only... He just... Oh, so yeah, it's, it's like another cursed Jonah by which name indeed they called him. So yeah, you're right. Ishmael did not make up that nickname. Uh, but still, it, it very possibly it, it it's not a not his real name. It's just what he's called because he stands in a whale's mouth all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ishmael finds the landlord and he asks for lodging. Um, but it turns out there's only one bed, and he's gonna have to share it with someone. Um, I've read this fanfic. Which... I actually have. Read this fan... <laughs> well, I read this book, so I have read this fanfic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Ishmael sort of reluctantly accepts that because, you know, he doesn't want to have to sleep in a bed with someone else, but he wants to sleep. Um, so he waits around for supper to happen. Uh, he watches a sailor carve up the bench that they're sitting on. Well, specifically, it's that he um, he asks if there's any other, like, it, could he just sleep on the bench here? And so the uh, the bartender or someone just goes at it with a 
uh, plane to plane it down to make it smooth enough to sleep on and completely that fails. That's that's like at the end of the chapter. Oh yeah. Ah, oh, sorry. I thought you were. I thought that was the uh, carving you were talking about. My bad. It's okay. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of back and forth where like Ishmael decides he's going to sleep in the bed and then he changes his mind and then he becomes increasingly anxious, worrying about who this harpooner is, and then he says, "Never mind, I'll sleep on the bench." So it it kind of uh, it's not surprising to me that the timeline gets a little confusing. Um. Especially because, actually, uh, Ishmael has supper at the inn with a handful of other people who are there. Um, and he finds out from conversation that the harpooner he's going to share a bed with is not here right now. Um, he's someone who supposedly is, is he's dark-complexioned and he only ever eats steaks. Um, which is a kind of, uh, like, tall claim, I think. Uh, I don't think we're meant to take that seriously, but, uh, Ishmael is now, like, concerned over who this person is, and there's definitely, he's definitely worried about, uh, like, I don't know. He's, he's generically concerned. Yes, but, um, to me, it also seemed like his racial anxiety starts here because he uh notes that the harpooner is dark complexioned and uh gets nervous about that yeah no i think you're right um it maybe we should like mention at some point like i don't know at what point it makes the most sense to have a little rrr interlude about like melville's relationship to i think that would be when queequeg actually shows up would be a good spot for that yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but yeah, basically, suffice it to say that there's a lot of race stuff here that, like, Ben and I are both white, uh, so we're definitely going to be careful to try not to put our foot in it too bad here, but um, yeah, uh, it's it's pretty unavoidable, actually, in Moby Dick. Yep. Melville has some opinions about race. They're not as bad as they could be, but they're certainly not modern. Yes. Um, so, okay, Ishmael's done with dinner. He's uh, getting more and more worried about his future bedfellow. He goes back to the bar room where he's planning to spend the rest of the evening just watching people come and go. Um, and pretty soon there's something exciting for him to look at. A bunch of sailors who've just arrived from a voyage all pile into the bar. Uh, and they're rowdy and getting drunk. I just want to point um, out that Ishmael finds it exciting to look at a bunch of rowdy sailors. Sorry. Go I on. mean, to be fair, if you have nothing to, if you're sitting around in a bar and there's nothing to do, a bunch of loud people coming in is exciting. It's true. But, the The only other exciting thing he's had to do is stare at the indistinct painting and assume it's a whale. Yes. Yeah. That might also be. <laughs> he might have spent a while waiting before the people actually showed up. But um. So uh. So all these sailors get in, and Ishmael takes a particular interest in one of them, who is sort of holding himself aloof from the revelry. Uh, this guy is named Bulkington. Um, He's also, and... um, there's an odd moment of, uh, we were talking about sort of the uh, the racial anxiety that Ishmael has. Um, in this case, he uses the, the guy's, you know, height and, uh, you know, skin tone and... Um, 
so on, to determine, and his uh, accent to determine that he must be one of those tall mountaineers from the Alleghenian Ridge in Virginia, which is just really weirdly specific. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the details of the assumption are probably not right, but I, I think, uh, like, wait, are, do you think that Bulkington is black? No, I, I think that he had, I think that Ishmael has a very specific sense of, like, what he thinks the physiological characteristics of people from a specific subset of Virginia are like. Ah, yeah, oh, that makes sense. Um, like, one... He is described as being brown, but I think that's meant to oh, mean yeah, yeah, no, he's, tanned. He's tanned, yeah. No, I just mean that he stood six full feet in height with noble shoulders, a chest like a cofferdam. I've seldom seen such brawn in a man. And from his fine stature, I thought he must be one of those tall mountaineers from the Alleghenian Ridge in Virginia. There's this very strong sense that Ishmael has of, like, connecting physiology to location in a really very, very specific way. Yeah. And I genuinely don't know if this is something Melville, you know, believed in, or if it's that Ishmael has some really odd ideas, because it comes out in really weird ways with uh, characters of all sorts of backgrounds. Yeah, he is very interested in talking about, the like, the different origins of different sailors, like what parts of the world they're from, um, which mm-hmm. often involves specifying different parts of, like, of the U.S., uh, yeah. more than, like, people from different nations, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, eventually, uh, Bulkington slips outside, and all of his shipmates realize he's gone, and go, Bulkington! Bulkington! Where's Bulkington? And they all run out of the inn to go find him. Yep. Um, I, I should note, it, it says that, uh, you know, he was, it seems, for some reason, a huge favorite with them, and the thing is, Bulkington is also a huge favorite with me. He's one of my favorite characters, and for reasons that are extremely trivial and will only show up in, like, a number of chapters, but, um, I felt very seen by this sentence on on rereading. Yeah, uh, you are clearly part of the Bulkington fan club. Uh, whenever Bulkington is not on the screen, everyone should be asking, where's Bulkington? Where's Bulkington? Yeah. Um. Oh no, Bulkington died on his return to his home planet. (laughs) Sorry, Ben. Um. So, with that business concluded, Ishmael continues ruminating on his sleeping plans. You might say ruminating on his room? Hmm? One might say that, yes. If the one was you. (laughs) Or Melville. Uh, And this is when he decides, um, oh, never mind, I'll sleep on the bench. Because he's thinking, you know, nobody likes to sleep two to a bed, even if it's your own brother and... I don't know who this harpooner is, and he still isn't home, even though it's getting late. Um, so who knows what kind of unsavory individual he is. Um, so the landlord, that this is when he starts going at the bench with a plane to try mm. to make it flat. Yeah, I just got um, that wrong. And uh, there's a little bit, it, it, it's sort of, it's basically like a little comic scene because... It's uh, it's a bench. Shaving it down with something to smooth out the knots is not going to make it more comfortable or less of a bench. Um, but this guy is just going to all this effort to try to make Ishmael comfortable. Um, but he lays down, but it's uneven, and the bench is too short, and there's a draft. 
So he changes his mind again. Yeah, there's a, there's a really elaborate uh, series of efforts to try and make uh, the bench in any way uh, hospitable, and it just completely fails. Yes. Um, so now, uh, then Ishmael asks his, the landlord what this harpooner is doing still out, you know, not having come back to where he's uh, secured a bed for the night. Yeah. And it's almost um, midnight. An- yes. Uh, and the answer is that he's going to sell his head. Um, like you do. And then there's this little back and forth where basically, uh, it, it, in my opinion, the landlord is stringing Ishmael along. Um, it's it's a very, like, who's on first kind of thing where what is actually happening is that the harpooner is trying to sell an embalmed head, um, which is a real thing that exists called mokomokai. Uh, that became a trade good in the 19th century. They're uh, Maori people in New Zealand make them, or made them. I have no idea if this is still a thing that's done. I would be surprised, but, you know. Well, I mean, it's not like... Oh, no, no, no. I, I just I just mean that it's... Uh, I would not be surprised if it's no longer a trade good, at the very least. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing where sailors in the 19th century would collect heads from New Zealand and go and sell them back in America as curiosities. I, God, I hope that no longer happens. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, anyhow, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like the tulip craze, but mildly more morbid and with significantly fewer long-term repercussions. Um, so Ishmael gets increasingly baffled by the, by this nonsense and, and more and more angry. Um, uh, excuse you. The... He says that he is cool as Mount Hecla in a snowstorm while uh, ranting at the landlord. Well, yes, that's what he says. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's very clear that uh, Ishmael is really getting worked up about it. I mean, he, he, he thinks that the landlord is making fun of him when he says that the guy is going to sell ahead. So they have a little back and forth that uh, about it until um, finally the landlord admits he's selling an, an embalmed head and it's uh, he's trying to sell it right now so that he won't have to sell it tomorrow on Sunday um, when nobody will buy it because they're going to church. Um, but... Uh, so this sort of satisfies Ishmael now that he knows what's going on. Um, and eventually he turns in and goes to bed. Um, which is still before the Harpenier has come back. Um, and Ishmael looks around the room. It's pretty much what he expected, except for this object, which he describes as being like a doormat or possibly sort of like a poncho. Um, like a big flat rug with a hole in the middle that you could put your head through. Um, which Ishmael puts on for some reason. Um, I mean, you, you described uh, in the notes that Ishmael's kind of like um, an adventure game protagonist, like a, a point-and-click adventure game character. Yes, um, uh, that's very much the vibe that I got from him just seeing like, oh, an interactable object. Um, 
Maybe that's what, that also fits with his habit of like asking everyone in the bar what they think about that painting. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah, you're right. That's extremely like trying to get all the dialogue options out. Ishmael exhausts every possible uh, interaction before moving on to the next room. And that's why the book is like 600 pages long. Um, and then he sees himself in the mirror in the poncho thing and immediately takes it off, uh, and just gets into bed and starts to doze for a while. Uh, and then finally his bedfellow arrives, um, and just comes in seemingly totally unaware of Ishmael's presence. Um, and Ishmael is just laying there in bed. He's been awoken so he's just looking at this guy, trying to figure out what kind of person he is. Um, and he fails pretty spectacularly, yeah, I would say. Yeah, it should be noted this is by candlelight. It's, you know, it's a dim room. But also Ishmael makes a number of just weird leaps of, uh, of logic in what he thinks is going on repeatedly during this whole scene. Yeah, he's, he's sleepy. <laughs> he's very sleepy here, I think. Um, so... Uh, what happens is first Ishmael sees what he thinks are plasters on the guy's face, um, but he realizes they're actually tattoos um, described as being like square, dark spots on his face. Uh, and this sort of, this leads Ishmael to think like, oh, I must be looking at a deeply tanned white man who lived among people who do facial tattooing. Yeah. Um, it, this is probably a good place to put uh, Melville's like own experiences in uh, Polynesia. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, especially because this is the first instance, as far as I'm aware, of the word cannibal, which is going to show up a lot in this book and is a crux of the weird combination of racial anxiety and oddly universalist uh like desire for racial reconciliation that runs through this book mm-hmm. like and uh the the word in particular is interesting because uh, melville's first two books were based on his own whaling voyage in um the south seas in polynesia uh which led to him being basically known as when they became a critical success the man who lived among the cannibals so which already is a weird sentence in a lot of ways. Just imagine the largest possible scarecrows or quotes around that sentence whenever I say it. But um, what's interesting about that, first of all, is there's this sort of sense of like, even beyond the specific accusation of eating human beings, cannibal means like not quite human in some really distinct ways, or at least not the kind of human that you ever encounter in sort of nor- in normal Western life. It's a very racialized term. And it's one that the book is really interested in. Um, Again, because Melville has a much less judgmental position on cannibal as a term than you'd expect. Uh, But also, he has some weird essentializing ideas about it. Um, So... Yeah. It's definitely worth mentioning that as far as this book is concerned, like, uh, you know... that's just the term in many ways and also that is the behavior because there's there's mentions of just sort of offhanded mentions of eating people yeah and i i think the way that this book thinks that queequeg eats people is not like 
historical, as I understand it. Like, cannibalism has existed historically. Yeah. But usually for ritual reasons, um, not just, like, for food. Uh, yeah, I... I think that when we get to the anecdotes about Queequeg's uh, dining experiences, we should probably go do some research for that one. We don't really need to here because it doesn't come up, but I'm just putting a pin in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so when um, then Queequeg takes off his hat and gets into bed, and Ishmael realizes he's nearly bald except for a little knot of hair on his head. Um, which makes Ishmael think about an embalmed head and freaks him out, but he can't run because, um, because Queequeg, who, this guy is Queequeg, uh, yeah. is between him and the door. He hasn't gotten into bed yet, has he? Uh, no, Queequeg gets into bed. Well, or, or... he does eventually, but first he, uh, he has his little ritual. Oh, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, no he, he just... He just takes off his hat, and then he continues to undress, um, as Ishmael continues to watch him in- increasingly weirded out by everything that's happening. And in- increasingly going from uh, his original theory, which is, ah, this is a white guy who uh, was a whaler and ended up living among the cannibals and got tattooed, to, oh, oh, no, no, this is, this is actually a Polynesian. Hell. Yeah. Which, yes. you know. <laughs> um... Yeah, so, obviously, you know, uh, the fact that he's, this should go without saying, but, like, uh, it's gross that he's freaking out so much about the possibility of sharing a bed with a person of a different yep. race than him. He's he's specifically afraid that his head is going to get harvested. Yes. Um, but, uh, the other guy... Queequeg completely ignores Ishmael um, and uh, gets ready for bed by um, taking out a small black statue and performing devotions to it. He sings and he burns a small offering, uh, which Ishmael watches all this terrified and definitely fascinated as well. Yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, no, you're right that he's he's uh, he describes it as all these queer proceedings increased my uncomfortableness, which oh god, that's a gross word, uncomfortableness. Just yeah, um, but he's also definitely, I mean, you know, it, it, Ishmael is not if if he were genuinely terrified for his life at this point, he would be doing something different. But he's a little bit. I mean, you'd like, assume that, but this is Ishmael. Well, okay, true. Um, well, what he, he does finally yell when uh, the harpooner takes up his pipe, which is also some kind of weapon, which Ishmael calls a, a tomahawk. Um, I'm guessing it's not. I mean, a tomahawk is a uh, a North American native weapon, as I understand yeah. it. So, I mean, it's, it's probably a misnomer. But. It's unclear here. Whatever it is, it's it's a pipe that also has an attached blade, so it might. It probably resembles a North American tomahawk. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, the harpooner starts, um, gets into bed and starts smoking, and that finally uh, makes Ishmael yell. Well, um, he stammers out something after the. Oh no, he sang out. You're right. You're right. Yeah, and then uh, after that, it, that makes 
Queequeg aware of Ishmael, and now they're both kind of freaking out, and Queequeg is jumping around and, like, wielding his weapon. Uh, meanwhile, Ishmael is yelling for the landlord. Um, and the landlord shows up to reassure him and say, Oh, Queequeg here wouldn't harm a hair of your head. And uh, let's let's be clear. The landlord is mostly there to reassure Queequeg that the stranger in his room is not, you know, out to get him in any way, given that Ishmael has just been sitting there silently watching Queequeg enter the room for, like, ten minutes, saying nothing. And Queequeg got into bed. Okay, don't smoke in bed. But Queequeg gets into bed with, uh, you know, to smoke. And there's someone else there who shouts at him. I think Queequeg is the much more reasonable person in this scene. Oh, absolutely. Queequeg has far more reason to be <laughs> freaking out and, like, scared of his bedfellow. Um... But, uh, fortunately, he's a very understanding and, like, noble person. Um, because after the landlord just explains quickly, um, unfortunately, an I dialect. Oh, God, uh, the I dialect. Um. Yes. Let's uh, just, just decide that unless there's, unless we absolutely have to, which I can't imagine happening, we're just not going to reproduce any of that. Oh, yeah, we're definitely not going to read Queequeg's lines aloud because, <sighs> yeah, they are all written in I dialect. Um, but, uh, so the landlord in, in a similar kind of, like, fake broken English communicates to Queequeg that, no, this is just, you're sharing a bed tonight. Um, and Queequeg seems to take that well. He just sits back and, uh, throws the bedclothes aside and motions for Ishmael to get in. So, um, I want to say it's not just that he throws the bedclothes aside, it's he really did this in not only a civil, but a really kind and charitable way, which I, I just want to point out is immediately after um, the lights actually are on and uh, Ishmael gets a chance to see Queequeg, like, sitting up in bed with his pipe, and I, I just like to believe he's like, wow, oh no, he's hot. But, um... It is not an implausible, uh, idea. I mean, for some reason... It's Shortly after the landlord gets in here and, like, is able to say, you know, Queequeg won't hurt you, that satisfies Ishmael. Um, and he... Not just satisfies him, but he's immediately like, wow, Queequeg's so nice. Yeah, simply moving a blanket aside makes Melville think that Queequeg is really well, civil, Ishmael. kind, charitable. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, my point is Ishmael... Ishmael is immediately taking this very positive impression of Queequeg from this very simple and honestly necessary gesture. Yeah. Um, uh, he also describes him as a clean, comely-looking cannibal, which is a wild piece of alliteration. It really is. Uh, so Ishmael makes one request, which is just put away the pipe. Smoking in bed is dangerous, um, which Queequeg assents to. And uh, they both go to bed and sleep like my precious children. Yep, the, the actual line is... Uh, I turned in and never slept better in my life. So, um, yeah, from uh, from shouting at each other in terror to uh, just, like, cuddle pile in about five seconds. Yeah. Um, so that is the end of this chapter. Uh, and uh, we will see next chapter how, how Queequeg and Ishmael get along once they have the chance to actually... You know, communicate in any sort together. of fashion. Also, yes, that. yes, communicate at all. Yes, <sighs> uh, but for now, I think we will leave them peacefully sleeping in the spouter inn.
okay, can we, can we talk about the art in this chapter? Not like the, the woodcuts, but like the painting, there's a mention of Scrimshaw, there's the uh, the craft involved in the glasses or the tumblers at the bar, which are intentionally uh, bad so that you get less than you pay for. Oh, yeah, I didn't go into that, but he, he describes how they are, like, deceptive. Yeah, there's also, oh. there's the um, the little uh, sort of devotional statue, uh, votive, maybe? I don't know. Uh, no, probably not. Um, there's the pieces, uh, basically there's a ton of little bits of, like, craft, there's the planing of the bench, and there's the painting, and I am really interested in how this stuff shows up all through the book. I mean, part of it is that uh, Melville is setting out to describe the whole world of, like, the whaler, so all of the little pieces that put it together, all of the, the mechanical elements of it are important, but it's also sort of uh, fascinating how often it comes up and specifically Ishmael has this weird obsession with art and images of whales that comes up like pretty deep into the book in one of my favorite chapters and so looking back from there it's really unclear if he's right about the painting Mm, like he might be reading it as a whale painting simply because he is obsessed with whales yeah exactly and uh, similarly, there's all this sort of craft. Scrimshaw comes up a number of places, and I think he is uh, called Scrimshander or Scrimshander by the uh, by the landlord. Oh yeah, uh, who is himself constantly whittling. There's this constant like uh, carving and whittling, and Scrimshander, obviously, uh, it, or what we would now call Scrimshaw, is whittling with whale's bones. Right. Yeah, I was about to say we should define scrimshaw because I I know what that word means, but uh, I grew up in New England, <laughs> and I I, th- I think that like I've had more exposure to scrimshaw <laughs> in my life than the average person. <sighs> what you're saying is you you have you have you have real scrimshaw experience. You're you're an expert in scrimshaw, I, I or mean, at least I've in, in some... scrimshaw existing. I've seen some in a museum. That's all. Fair uh, enough. I've, like, been to... I'm pretty sure I've been to, like, a, a whaling museum before. Mm-hmm. Um, although, if I... It would have been when I was a little kid, so I don't remember much. Um, I... Is it fair game to bring up the Terror of Whales right now? Uh, w- perhaps? Uh, I'm not quite oh, sure what you mean. I, I'm just imagining... Uh, Small you visiting a whaling museum seems, like, both adorable and, like, you'd be terrified. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sure I was. I mean, what what you're thinking... The... I, I don't think that I ever encountered, though, in a museum like that, the thing that actually, like, is the origin of my fear of whales, which is the giant whale skeleton at the um, Harvard Museum of Natural History. Wait, whale, whaling museums don't have whale skeletons? Uh, I mean, not that I'm aware of. Oh. I I think museums devoted to whaling tend to be small. That's and like, fair. Um, but yeah, that whale skeleton is like, it hangs in the ceiling of this huge room that is all full of like various animal skeletons. And it's kind of a creepy room in general because of the bones. And then there's just a bone leviathan hanging in the air over your head i don't know i don't think it was unreasonable of me to get scared of that as a child no that, that that's fair whales are indefinitely large 
That's definitely something the book believes in, other than the fact that it gives very specific sizes for whales. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's also, you know, there's the whalebone bar, or at least, like, the jaw over the bar. There's all these little things that are weirdly obsessed with craft and carving and, like, I think part of it is sort of the, the point is the scrimshaw because it's the, um, the pieces of the whale, even when the living whale isn't present, are sort of uh, coming on shore. And especially here, which is a, a whaler's bar, there's this sort of sense that whaling and all things to do with whales have their own sphere that is completely decorated in whale stuff. Yes, I definitely agree. But again, that could be Ishmael's obsession, because he's definitely got one, even if he's not really, uh, even if he's not fully conscious of it yet at this point in the book. Mm. Yes. And, 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 and obsessions are also obviously a huge theme of the book. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> oh, um, actually, I did want to, there's another little biographical note about Melville that I think is, is apropos to this, which is that Melville himself actually, uh, when he went out whaling, um, in, I think, 1842, uh, he was actually inspired by stories of sort of whaling adventures, including an account of the pursuit of a great white whale called Mocha Dick in 1839, uh, which was in one of the magazines. And he probably read that and it was probably a major inspiration for him going whaling in the first place. And then eventually he returns to it with Moby Dick. Also, can I just point out that Mocha Dick is a hilarious name and it sounds like an irony Twitter account? Yeah, it really does. Or, or just like, it sounds like a term for someone who is a jerk to you at a coffee shop. <laughs> like... Oh, I'm trying to relax, but this mocha dick keeps making weird faces at me. Uh. Well. Uh, yeah. Um, um. What did you? What else did you want to bring oh, up? Oh, well, one thing is a little bit, uh, a little bit more about um, Melville's sort of background, and that connects to the whole cannibal thing is that uh, and this is from the first one of the first reviews of Melville's writing after he wrote Typey. Uh, actually. Slight sidebar, Typey and Omu are his sort of autobiographical books about his voyages in Polynesia, the South Seas, and whaling, or at least they would be if he didn't hugely embellish them to the point that some uh, some sort of reviewers and analysts have described them as just outright fabrications. Um, he framed them as autobiographical, uh, and they were, you know, about his experiences, except when they weren't, because he took elements from other books he'd read, from other accounts that he heard from other sailors. Uh, basically, he wrote them like novels, mo mostly influenced by his own life, but presented them as very autobiographical. Uh, I'm pretty sure he invented a mutiny that he was uh, involved in, rather than the actual situation, which is that he just finished a voyage on an island and was a beachcomber there for a while. Um, so Melville's already had a lot of experience, especially early in his writing life, of sort of mixing real whaling voyage events with totally sort of fantastical ones, or at the very least uh, copying from other writers and adding in more sensational ones. And then you can see sort of how um, uh, basically figures like uh, Queequeg, um, later... Uh, Obviously, there's Captain Ahab. All of these sort of larger-than-life figures 
come out of his, uh, of that sort of embellishment, that sort of development out of the old whaling experiences. Uh, and I just think that's cool. Uh, and it's also, and I'm bringing it up now because Queequeg is, yeah, a weird character in a lot of ways. And we're going to see a lot of this because he's on the one hand, a sort of almost like caricaturish, uh, you know, new, uh, cannibal Polynesian. He's got, you know, he's totally tattooed. He speaks in eye dialect. He's this like unstoppable physical force. Um, but he's also incredibly noble and personally kind and Ishmael has a huge crush on him from like the mo the word go. Yeah. Um, we'll see much more of this in the next chapter when we get to see more of Queequeg and his like actual behaviors. But yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of, of defensiveness that I feel over Queequeg because I think he's a good character and yeah. like interesting, but he is also a caricature. Yeah, in no, the way I, that you describe. I don't disagree, and I think I just think it's in, it's worth thinking about the fact that Melville would have actually interacted with people from uh, Polynesia, people from that region that he's basing this on, and probably. Uh, did meet whalers from there, from there, but at the same time, he absorbed certain stereotypes and ways of understanding them. And as we'll see in the book, he fit. Queequeg is both a person who's a really interesting character study and a figure who's sort of a thematic element of Melville's interest in. Uh, I mean, to put it broadly, Christians and cannibals which is as racialized as it sounds, but is also part of his sort of weird religious and societal commentary that runs through the book that is a really interesting, if really weirdly based and occasionally very racist thing. There's a, a line at the end of this chapter that I think is, is, is relevant to this, where, um, you know, deciding that he's, he's, this is right at the very end when he decides, okay, fine, I will get into bed as long as he stops smoking. He says, better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. Yep. Yeah, um, that is, that's like half the book right there. Um, but there's also, and in the line before that, there's the phrase, you know, what's all this fuss I've been making about? Thought I to myself. The man's a human being just as I am. He has just as much reason to fear me as I have to be afraid of him. But then he still frames that dichotomy of cannibal versus Christian. Uh, even if it's to say that, well, actually, cannibals can be great and Christians can suck. Yes. Um, those those divisions are, are very, like, deeply rooted, I think, in Melville's mind. Yeah, and it is, it is really interesting to see how they work out over the course of the book, um, and they will keep coming up. Uh, especially some of my favorite scenes are sort of deeply involved with that as well as being involved with the you know the chase for the white whale and all the various weird obsessions and so on that are going to come up this is a really big book i don't know if i've mentioned that yeah there's a lot of <laughs> there's stuff there's a lot it. of stuff there's a lot of stuff and there's a lot of just objects like there's scrimshaw lying around everywhere uh, you open up moby dick and it's like looking into a messy house God, I was actually thinking of like an, I was as soon as you said you opened it, I was like, yeah, it's like I'm looking into Melville's attic, and it's full of like weird stuff he found while whaling, and some of which he has really uncomfortable understandings of, but which he's really proud of and interested in. 
Yeah, but it, of course, like any cluttered attic, he it, it like has a secret or not secret. It has it has an arrangement that makes sense to him. Yeah, um, and in this case, it's an arrangement that makes sense to Ishmael, which is a problem because Ishmael is not good at arranging pretty much anything. <sighs> well, I say a problem. I actually love it. So you know that that's me complaining about things I like. <laughs> uh, right? Was there? anything else quickly about uh oh right there's there's one line that i think is interesting in regards the uh um the the christian cannibal thing that's slightly different the christians and cannibals thing that uh that melville's doing and that ishmael's so uh, interested in um which is that in uh after Typey came out, so his first book, he's been convinced by his friends to write a book. Also, this is all like Wikipedia level history. I'm sorry, we've become one of those podcasts. Um, I'm not sorry. Well, hopefully, we'll do slightly better research for other things, but this is great. Uh, Nathan- uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who's later Melville's like obsessive crush and like personal writing like goal and lodestar, uh, uh, like sorry, like North Star, uh, reviewed Typey. Uh, and there's a quotation uh, during the, the effusive praise for Typee, which is, again, his first novel about his uh, whaling voyage, somewhat fabricated, gets a ton of positive press that he wasn't expecting, and is sort of establishes his uh, cannibal associate credentials and, uh, like, public persona. Um, Melville uh, is described by Hawthorne as having, quote, that freedom of view which renders... Uh, him tolerant of codes of morals that may be little in accordance with our own. And he specifically cites the idea that Melville can, like, appreciate and speak about cannibals, uh, despite the fact that, you know, Melville and his audience are all assumed to be, you know, devout Christians. It's it's New England in the 1800s. Um, you know, this is Nathaniel Hawthorne of the Scarlet Letter. Uh, and so there's this sense that... Melville to his uh, contemporaries was seen as almost like an amoral degree of cosmopolitan. He's so capable of expressing or recognizing, um, like the basically the humanity in the in the cannibal, and so I think that's really interesting in terms of what uh, Melville was already understood to be doing as a writer before he gets to Moby Dick, like years before. Not a lot of yeah. years though. In between 1846, when Typey came out, and 1851, when Moby Dick was finished, he wrote six novels. I I hate him so much. That's six novels in five years, and one is Moby Dick. God. Yeah, that's that's pretty envy worthy. Um, Yeet me into a whale. <laughs> well, I think that's a wonderful line to end on. Uh, I've had a great time recording this podcast with you. Um, if anybody is interested in looking me up on Twitter, I'm at uh, Char Asnablunt on Twitter. <laughs> Sorry. You're probably going to laugh at that every time, huh? Yes. Well, I keep forgetting. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Silkenstone. Um, I don't have that much interesting going on there. Yeah, I just, you know, figure we may as well mention our Twitter accounts. Yep, that's fair. If anybody wants to check them out. Um, And I will uh, look forward to 
talking to you next time as we hear what happens in the morning. Yeah, and and these these uh these adorable boys uh lying tangled up in bed. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. He's really not. Mm-hmm.